You are listening to a message from Foothills Church in Miraville, Tennessee. More information about Foothills Church can be found online at foothillschurch.com. Well, good morning, Foothills Church. Uh, about a year ago, I was scheduled to preach on a Sunday morning. And so I woke up <clears throat> that morning. My mind was kind of focused on my sermon and thinking about that. I got ready, went downstairs, walked out into the garage, got into my car, <clears throat> and I hit the garage door opener. And the garage door was, was most the way open when I threw my car into reverse, started backing out of the garage, and all of a sudden heard a sickening crunch and remembered that my in-laws were in town. I had just backed straight into my father-in-law's brand new Ford Expedition Sport. Literally, he had just driven it off the lot to drive to our house. <clears throat> now, that was an incredibly difficult morning, right? I mean, just the cost, but then having to go upstairs, wake up my father-in-law, have that discussion, it was terrible. I can assure you, I don't tell you this story this morning because I want to relive that memory. I'm a little sick right now just thinking about it. The reason I tell you that story is because the cause of that accident was a blind spot. Because of where my wife's van was parked, my, my father-in-law had parked on the right side of our driveway, I was on the left, and my just inattention to my surroundings, I did not see his vehicle. And because of that, it caused a lot of damage. Now clearly, if I had had a different perspective and I could go back, I would have done things differently. I wouldn't have hit that car. And maybe some of you all have had a similar experience driving, uh, of having a blind spot. Maybe, uh, maybe you were driving down the road and you didn't see a car and you went over to another lane and maybe narrowly avoided a wreck or actually had a wreck. Uh, but we all know that blind spots can be incredibly dangerous when we're driving a car. But I would say that blind spots can be incredibly dangerous to us spiritually as well. There can be things that are present in our life that are dangerous, that are wrong, but we don't see them, or at least we're not paying attention to them. And this can not only be true uh, for individuals to have blind spots, but there can be entire cultures that have blind spots. Uh, I think one example of where the church culture has had a blind spot throughout American history is in the issue of slavery. There were people who went to church week after week, read God's word, tried to really be dedicated Christians, and yet they owned and mistreated other human beings as property. And it was a cultural blind spot that, that people didn't see or, or just didn't pay attention to. And I think that, that there is a reality that we can still be uh, prone to that today. We can still be in danger of having these cultural blind spots. And if I were to say today what I think the biggest blind spot that we face as a church and as Christians is the blind spot of materialism. You see, we all have a struggle towards materialism, right? We all have a desire to have newer and better and cooler things. And, and I know that in my own life, as I was preparing for the sermon, I thought about how how driven I am by that, how, how, how many desires I have for, for money and material things and, and the things that come along with that. And we can begin to convince ourselves that we deserve certain comforts and experiences. We'll say things like, I owe it to myself. And there's a reality that, that this materialism is capturing our hearts and it is eating up our time and our energy and our resources. 
And so I think it's important that we ask ourselves this morning, what are our blind spots? Do we have this blind spot of materialism? And what does God teach us to do about it? Because so often we kind of compare ourselves to the culture around us. But that's not, that's not what we should do. We shouldn't just ask, how is the culture living? We need to ask, how does God call us to live as his people? And so this morning, in order to do that, we're going to look to his word. We're going to be in Mark chapter 10, uh, verses 17 through 27. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open there. God says to us this morning through his word, beginning in verse 17, And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for the camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you for the opportunity that we have to gather together to worship you and to focus on your word. Father, I, I will confess in my life and I think across this church that, that there can be blind spots. There can be things in our lives that, that we just don't see, but they're dangerous. And so, Father, I pray that, that through your spirit this morning, through the truth of your word, you would open our, our hearts to see where this, this blind spot may be present. And Father, that you would speak to us in truth through your spirit so that we would respond in obedience. And we ask all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So we have this passage, and what's happening is that Jesus and his disciples have been ministering in this area. And they're getting ready to move on to the next place. And so they get everything that they have, they pack it up, and they're starting to walk down uh, this path. And all of a sudden, you have this man run up behind them. And he runs and he gets in front of Jesus and he, he bows, kneels down before him, and he asks him for something. And what he asks him for is a question, what does it take? What do I have to do in order to inherit eternal life? Now, this is an important question. My hope is that everyone in this room this morning at some point has asked that question yourself. What, what does it take to receive eternal life? It's an important question. This is not uh, just a question like, where am I going to go on vacation? Or, or what are we going to do next year? This is a question about where we're literally going to spend millions and billions and trillions of years. And so many of us have, have, like this rich man, we've wrestled with this question. Maybe, maybe for some of us it's caused stress and anxiety, asking ourselves, you know, where we stand when it comes to this issue. But it's an incredibly important question. And so he asked Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now Jesus' response to him is interesting because he doesn't start with the question. What he starts with is redefining the word good. 
So he comes and says, good teacher. And Jesus says, you need to redefine the concept that you have of what it means to be good. And what Jesus says is that by, by the true definition, by the definition that Jesus has, the only person in the universe who qualifies as good is who? It's God. And this is important for the rest of the story because this man is, is, is obviously misunderstood what, what goodness truly is. And so Jesus redefines goodness as, as something that only God has. And, and so Jesus says to this man, he says, okay, well, if you want to ask what you have to do, right, this man is assuming that it's some action that he can do on his own to inherit eternal life, then what you have to do is essentially be perfect. He says you have to keep the commandments. And we know uh, from the Bible that the Ten Commandments were given by God to his people uh, as his law. It's, it's the perfect standard of God. That, that if you want to approach God, that you have to be perfect. You have to keep all of these commandments perfectly. And what is shocking is this man's response to Jesus. Because when Jesus says you have to keep the commandments, this man says, check Got that one covered. And, and this is incredible. I mean, just reading, like, man, I mean, I can't think of anyone that I would say, okay, you keep the commandments perfect. Yeah, never lied, right? All of the, you know, obviously, this man has a, a very impressive perspective of his own goodness. And likely, this man was seen as a very good person. He probably was an incredibly moral person. He probably was a guy in the community that, that everyone respected. They knew he was a good guy, a religious guy. He did good things, and, and on top of all of that, he was rich. So everybody loves this guy. And so he's impressed with his own goodness. He's convinced that he is good. But we see here that Jesus knows his heart. Jesus looks at him, the passage says. Now, have you ever had someone when you're interacting with them, that, that when you walk up, they kind of look at you and you feel like they're like analyzing everything about you. Ever had that happen? It's, it's incredibly eerie, right, feeling when somebody does that. Can you imagine standing in front of Jesus and having him look at you, not, not just at your eyes, but look into your heart, look into your soul, look into your mind and know everything about you? A few months ago, my youngest son, John Martin, uh, who's... who's two now, uh, got very sick. He, he, uh, he got sicker and sicker, and he, he was wheezing, and he was, he was having difficulty breathing. And so we took him into the emergency room at Children's Hospital, and we took him into the, the ER. They said, we think there's something going on with his lungs. And so they took him back, and they, and they made an x-ray. And, and when you see the x-ray of his lungs, you see these, these spots, and, and what the doctor says is that's pneumonia. He has, he has pneumonia in his lungs. There are things that were going on inside of him that we, we couldn't necessarily see on the outside, but they were revealed through these black spots on an x-ray. And essentially what Jesus does with this man is he gives him an x-ray of his heart. He looks beyond the outward appearance. He looks inside and he says, there are these black spots on this man's heart. And the black spots that Jesus sees in this man's heart are that he loves his money. That his, his money is in a place that only God should ever be. And so this is what happens as Jesus interacts with this man. He sees his heart. He sees what's going on inside of him. 
And so what Jesus says is once he sees this, once he sees the true condition of this man's heart and the fact that money is at the center, he tells this man that what he needs to do in order to receive eternal life is to sell everything that he has, give it to the poor, and come follow Jesus. And that leads us to our first point this morning, which is that Jesus demands full heart surrender. You see, what it means to be a Christian is fundamentally to say, what it, what it means to be a follower of Christ is fundamentally to say, I am surrendering my life to Jesus, that, that everything I am, everything I have is, is now his. I'm surrendering to him. Now, we don't do this to earn salvation. It's not as though we, we sacrifice things or we give things in order to earn salvation because we can't. The Bible clearly tells us that we're all sinners. We're all separated from God, and we cannot earn his forgiveness. We cannot earn his salvation. That's why the gospel is so good, because what the gospel tells us is that God loves us. He sent his son from heaven to come down to live the perfect, sinless life we all fail to live, and then to die the death we all deserve to die on the cross, taking the punishment and the penalty for our sins. And then ultimately he was risen from the dead, and he offers us eternal life. He offers us forgiveness and a relationship with God if we would just turn from our sin and trust in him. So, so we cannot earn eternal life or salvation. Jesus has done everything necessary to offer us salvation. We simply have to receive it by faith. However, the evidence that we have truly trusted Christ as our Savior, the, the requirement, if you will, of, of, of truly being saved is that we surrender our life to Christ. And this is what we picture in baptism. We began this service with a baptism. And what you are displaying when you are baptized is that as you go under the water, you are saying that as Jesus died on the cross, I am now dying to a life of living for myself, of, of living for sin. And when you come up out of the water, you're saying as Jesus was risen from the dead, so I am now being raised up to a brand new life of, of following Christ and ultimately that is characterized by surrendering to Christ. So, so what this fundamentally means is as a follower of Christ now, there is no area of my life that's off limits. There is no area of my life where I call the shots. We hand Jesus a blank check with our lives and say, I will do whatever it takes to honor you, to obey you. It's complete and total surrender. And so when Jesus looks at this man, he sees that the area of his heart, the area of his life that he has not surrendered to God is his finances. And so what Jesus says is, is in order to inherit eternal life, in order to follow me, you need to give up all that you have. Now this, this seems extreme to us, right? When we consider that, I mean, come on, sell everything? Like surely there's there's a, there's a more modified version, right? I mean, this is so heavy. As kids might say here, Jesus has no chill, right? I mean, this is so oppressive. And as we consider the application in our own life, we, we were saying, man, Jesus demands surrender? I mean, that, that feels so heavy. It feels so oppressive. It, it almost feels like if any of you guys have been part of a, a fraternity or a sorority, Right? And there's like, often there's these things that you have to do, all these crazy things to prove that you really want it. And so you go through these, you know, these, these weeks and months that are kind of miserable to prove that on the other side, you know, you, you really want to be part of this organization. Sometimes we, we, can, we can almost feel that way. 
Like Jesus, Jesus just wants us to go through misery and difficulty and sacrifice just to prove something, but that's not the case at all. That leads us to our next point in this passage, which is that Jesus desires freedom from heart slavery. Jesus desires freedom from heart slavery. In verse 21, when Jesus looks at this man, what does it say his response is to him? He loves him. And I think this is huge. Because the command that Jesus gives this man is is not oppressive or or some desire to make him miserable. The the command that he gives this man to to sell everything is, is motivated by love. And in the same way, when Jesus calls us to surrender our hearts, to sacrifice our lives to him, it's not motivated by misery, it's motivated by love. I shared that John Martin, my youngest son, went to the hospital, did the x-ray, found that he had pneumonia. And so the medicine the doctors gave us uh, is, is this machine that we take, and it has a mask. And, and you put the mask uh, on his face, and he has to breathe in this vapor of this medicine, and it gets down into his lungs, and, and, and it makes him heal. Now you can imagine, at this point he was not even two years old, how much my son enjoyed having a mask shoved over his nose and mouth and sitting still for 15 minutes. I mean, it, it, it would have felt absolutely miserable. He hated it. It doesn't make any sense to him at this time why we're doing this. Now, we're not putting that mask with a little dinosaur over his nose and mouth because we want him to be miserable. Why are we doing it? Because we love him, right? We want him to be healthy. We, we, we want him to, to grow and, and get better. And I think that's the picture of, of what Jesus is doing in, in this man's life and in our lives. Is he wants us to be spiritually healthy. That's his desire. That's his outcome. And so he calls these, for these steps of, of sacrifice potentially that are difficult ultimately because he wants us to be spiritually healthy. And he knows that for us, just like the rich man, just like the man in this passage, that for us, the desire for money and for material possessions and the temptation to love them is is dangerous and deadly. And we see this in verses 23 through 25. I mean, the the words of verse 23, when I read through this passage, they just like jump out of the page. It says how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. I mean, that's, that's crazy. How difficult it would be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And he, he com- continues to, uh, to compare how difficult it is for, for people who have wealth to enter God's kingdom by saying, it's as difficult as a camel. Now, when we were in, in Kenya uh, this summer uh, for a mission trip, I saw camels. They would walk around. I mean, they're just gigantic, awkward, ugly animals, right? And, and the concept of that going through the eye of a needle, it's impossible, which obviously says it's only possible through God. But what, the point that he's making here is that our money and our possessions might actually be barriers that keep us from God. Now, to be clear, I'm not, I'm not saying that having money and having investments and having nice things is wrong. I'm not saying that at all. Those, those can be blessings from God to enjoy. But what I'm saying is that they can be dangerous, we can be, be tempted to, to love them and to attach our hearts to them. And we see this. 
We see this, I mean, in this story, we see it played out. How does the story end? The man walks away, sad. He, he is unable to give up his money in order to follow Jesus to experience eternal life. Now, it's interesting because this is not the only time we see a command like this from Jesus. In fact, every single one of the disciples is fundamentally given the same command. Jesus says, you've got to get rid of everything. You've got to give up everything and come follow me. And all of the disciples do that, right? They, they choose to surrender everything else and to come follow Jesus. And as a result, I mean, think about it. They get to be part of the life of Jesus. They get to see all of the things that Jesus is doing and experience and be part of, of literally changing the world in addition to the eternal life that Jesus promises to them. They hear this command and they're able to leave and follow. But why isn't this man? The reason is that his money and his things are literally like a weight that is chained to his heart. He can't let it go. And as a result, he misses out on a life of following Christ and he misses out ultimately on eternity in the kingdom of God. He chooses money over Jesus. And this is what Paul writes. The same danger, the same warning is what Paul writes about in 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 10. When he says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of the money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. So Paul is saying the same thing. He, he's giving warnings, right? These are warnings from God. I mean, things like those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into a trap. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. These are warnings that God, that God is calling us to take seriously, to, to recognize, because the love of money, the desire for more is incredibly dangerous. And one of the reasons that it's so dangerous is because it's blinding. I've had lots of people talk with me as a pastor about all kinds of things in their life. I've had people set up meetings to talk about personal struggles and marriage struggles and family. I've had people talk about all kinds of, of different things. I have never once had a person come to talk with me about their struggle with materialism. I've never had anybody set up a meeting and come in and say, I'm really struggling with greed. Never once. We don't think we struggle with it. And to be honest, when we hear sermons like this one, we're glad that somebody else is in the room to hear it. We're like, man, God was really smart putting this person in the room to hear this sermon. They need it. That's how we are. We're blind to it. We don't see that we struggle with materials, and we don't see that this, this love of money is, is dangerous to us. But the reality is, in this context, in the Western world, in America, we're all wealthy, right? We're, we're, we're the wealthiest people in the world in some sense. I mean, even, even the people who are lower middle class and, and even people who are considered poor are wealthier than 90% of the world, and this is the wealthiest civilization in history. I mean, the things that we have, the, the access that we have is, is unlike anywhere else. We're all wealthy, and we're all in danger of falling into the love of money and the materialism. And like the rich young man, we can easily become enslaved 
to our money and possessions. And so when I ask myself this question, when I, when I kind of preach this to myself, I ask, why, why is it that this is so dangerous? Why is it that it's so difficult? Well, you know, why am I not more generous, to be honest? Why, why do I not give more money away? Why do I not spend my, my time, my money, my energy more generously on, on kingdom causes or, or helping those in need? Why, why am I not? And the conclusion I come to is that the reason I don't, my guess is we have this in common, is because I get my identity in my money and the things that I can buy with it. We are so prone to literally define who we are, our identity in, in the kind of money we make, the kind of things we can buy, the lifestyle that, that we're able to afford. I mean, it literally can be wrapped up in the core of, of who we are. When somebody says, who are you? Well, you know, I'm Brant, and this is my job. And, and really quickly behind that are things that are connected to, to money I have. And, and it can be so wrapped up in there, and right behind it comes security. So much of the security that we feel is based on the money that we have. We're secure because we can afford certain things, and as long as we have the money to provide those, we feel secure. And all of a sudden, when that's in jeopardy, we feel insecure. And because it's so wrapped up inside of us in our identity, in our core, and in our security, it's so difficult to be more generous. Why? Because we feel like our identity itself is at threat. And I think that's the core of why the rich man walks away. Why does, why does he make this choice? Right? It's easy for us now to look back and go, man, why, why was he doing that? Why did he make that choice? Why did he walk away, keep his money, not follow Jesus? And I think the reason is this was his identity. I mean, think about it. How does Mark define this man? What, what name does he give him? The rich man. He was the rich guy, right? He was the guy that people knew of as rich. He was the good, moral, well-put-together rich guy. That was his identity. And Jesus was calling him to do something that would cut to the core of his very identity. And he couldn't do that. You see, Jesus wanted this man set free from this heart slavery, from finding his identity and security and, and things that aren't going to work. And ultimately, he wants you and me to be set free from that heart slavery as well. And this brings us to our third point, the final point in this text, which is that Jesus offers us true and lasting treasure. When we look at this passage, we look at verse 21, which is the passage where Jesus says to give everything, it's easy for us to just focus on what Jesus asked this man to give away and think, man, that's, I mean, that's so much. I mean, Jesus says sell everything, and that, that kind of captivates us. But what we don't focus on is what Jesus offers this man. I mean, look what Jesus puts on the table. He offers this guy a life of following Jesus. He offers this guy eternal treasures. He is offering this guy so much more than what he's asking him to sacrifice. He's saying, sell your, your, your things, give up your, your money, and in return, in exchange, receive something that's so much greater. Give up money that, that can be lost, that can be spent, that won't last, that won't satisfy. In exchange, receive eternal treasure that, that can't be taken away, that can't be lost. 
And this is the bottom line of the sermon, is that Jesus is not just after the, sat, the, the sacrifice of our finances. He is after the satisfaction of our hearts. Jesus is not just after a sacrifice of our finances. Fundamentally, Jesus is after the satisfaction of our hearts. Because what Jesus knows is that if you constantly live out of a love of money, a constant desire for more material things, you'll never find true and lasting satisfaction. It's like, it's like drinking seawater. Uh, if you guys go to the beach, uh, I, I love to go to the beach for our family vacations. And when you get out in the water, one of the things I love to do is to play in the waves, right? And, and I love days that are a little stormy because it's just so much fun out there. But one of the realities when you're doing that, inevitably, once or multiple times, you're going to end up doing what? Inhaling a giant gulp of seawater. Now, when you drink seawater, does that quench your thirst? No, it's disgusting. It dries your mouth out. It makes you literally feel like you're about to vomit. And so if I was sitting on the beach, and it was hot, the sun was shining, and, and I was like, you know what? I'm thirsty. And I got out, you know, my little cooler cup and went down and just reached in the water, filled it up, sat down, started drinking some seawater. Would that work to quench my thirst? Absolutely not, right? And the more that I drank, if I continued to do that, the more dehydrated I would get. Eventually, I'd end up passing out. It, it, it wouldn't work. And this is the concept of what materialism, constantly living out of love for money and desire for more, it's, like, it's literally like drinking seawater, right? We keep on desiring more. We keep on trying to, to quench the thirst of our souls, but it never works. We we keep on desiring more money. We keep on wanting newer and better things. We keep on getting them, but, it, but it's never enough. I mean, think about this. Do you have more things than you need? I, I do, right? I absolutely, I have, I have more things than I need. I know that. Now, why, why did that happen? How did that happen? Did someone force those things upon you? No, not more clothes. Not another couch, we can't, we don't have room. No more flat screen TVs, I can't take it. I mean, obviously not, that's silly. The reason we have more than we need is because we had a desire that wasn't met, right? It wasn't enough, and so we, we wanted more. So nobody else put those things in our house, we bought them. And this is the reality, is that, is that it's never enough. Right? It, it's never enough, and it's, it's such a powerful reality. Over the past few months, uh, Jill and I have been really intentional about a budget. And so we've got this budget, and the categories, we're going to spend this here and this here, and you know, save this and all this. And I keep asking myself, why is this so difficult? If you've kept the budget, I mean, why is it so difficult? Why, why is it so difficult to say, okay, I'm not going to buy this thing. I'm going to wait a month or two until I can afford it. Well, why is that such a difficult thing? I mean, I have what I need. Why can't I wait? And I think the reason is because I have desires and I have appetites that are so powerful and so magnetizing that it never feels like enough. And it makes it so difficult to live within our means. Paul Tripp writes this in his book, Awe. 
which is a great book. He says, this is why we tend to be so spiritually empty, so consistently unfulfilled, and so driven to fill up our lives with so many things. It's why we tend to be anxious and depressed. It's why we tend to be more jealous than thankful. It's why so many of us are unhappy. It's why we all tend to be looking for the next big thing. Hear this. We make the profound mistake of looking horizontally for what can only be found vertically. We, we look around us horizontally. We look at possessions and, and things and, and we, we try to find satisfaction and fulfillment in them and it doesn't work. Why? Because it wasn't intended to. We're not made that way. It, it, it doesn't satisfy us. And Jesus, Jesus is trying to, to the rich young man, to you and me this morning, Jesus is trying to protect us from ourselves. He knows that we have spiritually suicidal tendencies. He knows that we're so prone to hold on with clenched fists to things that will destroy us. And it keeps us from opening up our hands to experience what will bring us true life. And he knows this. And so out of love, he calls us to, to see this, to, to recognize that this is the case. Because ultimately, he offers us a life of joy. He offers us a life of satisfaction and meaning and purpose and fulfillment and pleasure that is beyond what we can imagine. He, he offers you more than money could ever buy or pleasure could ever provide because he offers you himself. See, fundamentally, this is what Jesus was offering the rich young man. He was offering himself. That's what we have to see. He's the treasure, right? He's what our hearts are searching for. He's where we find that satisfaction. And it's worth giving up anything that it takes to find and to know and to have a relationship with him. Because while it may seem costly to follow Jesus, we consider this. We consider the sacrifice. It may seem costly of our time, of our money, of our energy. It may seem costly to sacrifice earthly treasures, but it is far more costly to miss out on the joy and the satisfaction that comes from knowing Christ and serving Christ and, and living for Christ and ultimately on the eternal treasures that Christ promises are waiting for us in heaven. The day that I backed into my father-in-law's car was a painful day. And it filled my mind, and I thought about it, I worried about it, the money and the relational cost. And, and to be honest, it wasn't just one day. Over the next few days, it just kind of filled me, and I, and I was... I was so upset and mad at myself and all these things. But what happened is, is over time, I realized it was okay. I, I talked with him. He forgave me graciously. I, you know, made the payments on the cars and, and everything kind of went away. And so I had a perspective change that enabled me to change my outlook on things. 
I think the only way for us to avoid the blind spots of our lives and to live for eternal treasure is to get a different perspective. To get a bigger picture. You see, we have to to realize, to understand, to, to fundamentally believe that this world is not our home. The Maryville or wherever you are, this isn't, this isn't our home. We may be here 60, 70, 80 years, and then we're gone. So let's set our hearts and our eyes a little higher than the hills of East Tennessee. Let's focus our minds and our hearts on the place where we will spend the next billion and billion and billion years after that. Let's let that perspective reshape our treasure. We're about to take the Lord's Supper as we close our service. And I want to encourage you as we, as we take the Lord's Supper, this is a gift that Jesus has, has given to his followers that, that every time we take the supper, we have a tangible reminder of the body and blood of Jesus that was given for us. That there is forgiveness, that there is grace, that there is mercy through the cross of Christ. And as, and as I talk about this subject and as we consider, I mean, I'll be honest, I miss the mark so often, right? There's so many ways where, where I make mistakes and struggle and my heart's captivated by the wrong things. And if you're anything like me, I wanna encourage you, allow this time as you take the bread, as you take the cup, to be a reminder to you that Jesus lived the life you failed to live. He died to pay for those very sins, for the sins of the heart, for treasuring to the wrong things. And he offers forgiveness, he offers mercy, and he offers grace. And so we confess, Lord, I confess, I've, I've struggled with this, I haven't lived for the right things, I've let my heart be full of love for money or, or other blind spots in my lives, forgive me. And know that he does. And then in response to that, in response to that good news, Surrender every part of your life to him all over again. Lay everything down at his feet in surrender because he's worthy of every area of our lives. We're about to pass out the elements and so you'll receive the, the bread and the cup. After you receive that, feel free to take that on your own whenever you're ready and then we'll close our time together through worship and song. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for what you offer us. Father, we are so thankful that though we are, are sinful, we are so often misguided, we so often live for, for things that can't satisfy, that you, you offer us eternal treasure. You offer us a relationship with Jesus and, and the satisfaction and meaning and fulfillment that comes through walking with him, and then you offer us eternal treasures beyond what we can even imagine in heaven. So, Father, we thank you for that. Father, we confess, I confess, to so often living for the wrong treasure and living for the wrong things, let my heart be and my emotions be captivated by things that, that aren't right. So, Father, I pray that through the blood of Christ, you would offer us forgiveness 
Father, I pray that through the power of your spirit, through the truth of your word, you would bring us to the point of seeing things from an eternal perspective and allow us to surrender everything to you. That, Father, you would reshape our treasure. We ask this in Christ, our King's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. More information about Foothills Church can be found online at foothillschurch.com.